Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming to the first of this term's public lectures from the Middle East Centre on Fridays. We're delighted to be able to have Professor Jonathan Brown flying all the way from Georgetown University in the United States, and he'll be talking about justice and Islamic law, the Mazalim courts, and legal reform. Um, just a little bit about Professor Brown. He is the Al-Walid bin Talal Chair of Islamic Civilizations in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. He got his BA from Georgetown University in the year 2000, his doctorate in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations from the University of Chicago uh, in the year 2006, in record time, so to speak. Uh, I was he... trying to get married. <laughs> <laughs> he has a great sense of humor, as I'm sure will... Um, but that's of... actually true. That's <laughs> not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dr. Brown studied and conducted, has studied and conducted research throughout the Muslim world, and he is the author of five books, including most recently, Slavery and Islam, uh, published by Oxford's One World Press. His previous book, Misquoting Muhammad, The Challenges and Choices of Interpreting the Prophet's Legacy, published in 2014, was named one of the top books on religion in 2014 by The Independent. He has also published articles in the fields of Hadith, Islamic law, Salafism, Sufism, Islamic lexical theory, pre-Islamic poetry, just gives you an idea of sheer range. And he's the editor-in-chief of the Oxford Encyclopedia of Islam and Law. His current research interests include Islamic legal reform and a translation of Sahih al-Bukhari, the most important canonical text of hadith in the Sunni tradition. But with this lecture, we're basically going to get a taster of his latest research. Uh, the lecture is entitled Justice and Islamic Law, Mazalim Courts and Legal Reform. With that, I ask you to welcome Janeiro. Professor Jonathan Brown. Thanks for this. Is my student Zanira from Qatar, who's now in Oxford. <laughs> International travel. And then, former student Michael, I recognize you before you recognize me. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty good. From 2012, I recognize you. Okay, well, first of all, thanks very much. It's really, uh, I mean, I look. As you can imagine from recent news reading from by the American, you know, reading public, we're still highly Anglophilic. And so being invited back to the motherland is a big honor. I'm not going to lie. I wouldn't turn down the invitation. Uh, so thanks for inviting me and thanks for showing up. I, can you all hear me? I, there's no microphone here. Okay. Well, all right. I'll talk loud and you can hear me. So I, I just want to preface this by saying that, you know, everything I, I've ever researched or studied you know, I sort of had dual purposes. In one sense, I'm interested in kind of academic critical study of continuity and change in the Islamic tradition. But I'm also, uh, everything I study comes out of my own questions as a Muslim about, you know, uh, something that, that matters to me or that is usually a pressing question in the Muslim community. So that's certainly the case with this topic. And, uh, and I, I want to sort of start out by just reminding you all, it looks like a lot of you are experts, you know, that uh, Islam and the Muslim community is, is, a, is a community and, and religion of law. Not that Muslims are sort of obsessed with law and suing each other and things like that, but that uh, this is a kind of um, an idiom of law, right? So it's a, this is, Islam is a lot more like Judaism than Christianity. I always say Islam is like Judaism, take two, bigger caste, bigger budget. Uh, but the, the law is how you interact with God, right? You, one of the primary ways you interact with God and with each other is through a notion of law about duties and obligations and pra ritual practices. And so what is the Dar al-Islam, the abode of Islam, and the, according to medieval jurists, the abode of Islam is where the Sharia rules, right? It doesn't matter if it's a majority Muslim or not. It's where the Sharia rules. And, you know, Muslims should live where they can practice the Sharia, where they can practice their religion. 
and uh, you know, what do you do to show you're a Muslim? You know, to when I when I meet Osama, how do we know that we're both Muslims? Is that we both, you know, when someone comes over and offers the beer at the pub, we'll say no thanks. And when someone when it's time to pray, eventually, you know, he and I will acknowledge that we have to pray, and that's how we kind of identify as Muslim. So, in, a, in with the primacy of law here, one of the most sensitive and agonizing questions for Muslims in the modern period has been this this anxiety that God's law is not good enough, that the Sharia is not good enough, and that it, it's somehow, um, it's, it's out of date, it's immoral, it's backward, and that if you are, if it can be changed or if it should be changed, that duty to change or reform it actually undermines the entire notion that this religion is some kind of revealed wisdom that we are obliged to follow. You know, if, if God's law is really God's law, why would it need to be reformed? Right? Uh, so this is, uh, you know, if you're, if you study Islamic history, or if you know Muslims, or if you are a Muslim, what I just said to you shouldn't be a big surprise. Uh, hopefully I've expressed it in a succinct and clear way. So I want to, um, just kind of going off this idea of, you know, is God's good law good enough? I want to start with a story, and it's, uh, it's recounted by the famous uh, Ottoman jurist, uh, Muhammad Zahid al-Kothri, who died in 1952 in exile in Egypt. He was the last last academic sheikh of the Ottoman Empire, the Sheikh Dars. So if you were to think about like, you know, the, the senior scholarly position in the Ottoman Empire. And he was a truly capacious mind, uh, a tremendous uh, scholar. I recommend reading anything by him if you want to learn anything about Islamic history. Uh, he tells a story, and he's complaining about the kind of legal reforms going on in Egypt, in Syria, in the Middle East, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and especially, of course, his own home country, which had then been, you know, Sharia law had been completely obliterated from uh, the books of, of the Turkish Republic, from their legal scene. And he tells a story, which he draws from earlier sources, about the time of the famous Zengid Sultan Nuruddin Zengi, right, died in 1174. The nobles and the scholars of Aleppo write to Nuruddin Zengi and say, Nuruddin Zengi, probably more politely than that. They say, Sultan Nuruddin Zengi, uh, there are, as a series of thefts here, there's bandits, uh, people are being robbed in the streets. Uh, you need to come and really establish order here. We want you to chop off, you know, we want you to chop off hands. We want you to crucify people. We don't even care about due process. You need to bring law and order. Uh, God's law is not good enough. The Sharia is not good enough. You need to come and step in here. And Nuruddin Zengi writes back and says, if God had wanted me to do these things, he would have made these part of, this part of his law. God's law is sufficient. So for Kauthari at this time, this is sort of a response to secularists and legal reformists who are trying to say that the Sharia is backward and insufficient. He's saying, no, a real pious person like Nuruddin Zengi knows that God's law is enough. Now, uh, he's drawing this from an earlier source, a famous Ottoman kind of literature scholar named Kinalzade Ali uh, Chelebi, who died in 1572. He wrote a famous book called Akhlaq-e Alai, which is a, a kind of very typical Persianate, uh, late Sunni uh, ethical treatise of akhlaq, of ethics. And he tells the story as well. And it's a little bit less provocative. The nobles and ulama of Aleppo would simply say, Nordin Zangi, please come. We need bir miqdar siyasat, some amount of siyasa. We'll talk about this word in a second. And basically, uh, God's law is not sufficient. You need to come here. And he st- says the same response. If God had wanted this to be part of his religion, he would have uh, made it part of his religion. I'm not going to do anything beyond what, this, what the Sharia asked me to do. Now, the funny thing about this is that's not the actual original story. So if you go back to the original story of this, which appears in Abu Sham al-Maqdisi, who dies in the 1260s, 
his history of the two sultanates, so the Zengids and the Ayyubid sultanates, there you have the original story. And what happens is the ulama and nobles of Aleppo say there's a bunch of bandits and thieves going around causing troubles here in Aleppo, and we want you to come and give nur siyasa, a type of siyasa, and we want you to deal with this issue of hiraba. Now, actually, they refer exactly to a verse in the Quran which says that those people who make a war on God and their prophet on the, and his prophet, right, their reward is that they will be uh, executed and crucified and their hands and feet will be cut off in, from opposite sides. Right? So this is, this is the those people who fight God and their prophet and they seek to do corruption in the earth. So this is sometimes called in Arabic sa'aya, and this is often called the crime of hiraba, which is essentially banditry. It's basically violent robbery, organized violent robbery. Uh, so what they're actually saying, they're, they're not going one inch or one centimeter beyond what the Quran says. They're saying, here's the, the Quranic crime of hiraba is occurring. We would like you to come and deal with it. We want no siyasa, a type of siyasa, which we'll talk about in a second. And Nuruddin Zang, he's actually the he's wrong. He's saying, I'm not gonna do what I'm not gonna do anything that God hasn't mandated. God mandated right here in the book of God. He says, you have to go there and deal with these people harshly. So these ulama and nobles of Aleppo were doing exactly what a pious Muslim should do, which is they're turning to their political executive authority, the guarantor of law and order, and asking him to guarantee law and order. Okay, so what is this thing we talked about, Siasa? that's referred to in these stories. There's a one maybe good translation would be kind of executive authority. Of course, if you know Arabic, you know, siyasa means politics. It can mean policy. In kind of classical Islamic law or pre-modern Islamic legal thought and political thought, siyasa could mean a couple of things. It could mean almost like administrative law. Like it could be the siyasa of a dynasty that, you know, um, there's going to be this department for taxation and this department for foreign affairs and things like that or you know this is going to be the taxation system and this is going to be how the customs work and this is going to be how the military functions it can be imperium in the sense that it's like literally the ruler's ability to give muscle to the law so somebody in the end is going to have to be there and say if it's been found that you owe x you know osama owes someone else money somebody's going to have to go to him and say time to pay up right someone there ultimately there has to be some compo- compelling authority in the law, and that that's ultimately provided by the guy who has, or, you know, the guns or the swords or the bows and arrows or the thugs or the clubs, and that's, that's siyasa, kind of the ability to command authority and punish people for not obeying that authority. And finally, uh, siyasa can be thought of as uh, what you might think of as royal justice, the notion that the ruler is, ultimate, is the ultimate guarantor of justice in the realm. And this both comes from a kind of Near Eastern tradition of the, you know, the Sassanid Shah as the shadow of God on earth, or the Roman emperor as the ultimate guarantor of, of justice in the empire for citizens of Rome, who can, in the end, theoretically ask for a hearing before the emperor, right? Or the, the Arab tribal sheikh, whose job it is to provide a justice in the sense of resolution of conflicts for his tribe. So this is not this is something you see generally in the Near Eastern tradition, and it carries over strongly in the Islamic a tradition where you have notions that they're not reliable hadiths, but kind of made up hadiths that the, the sultan is the shadow of God on earth, and that ultimately it's up to the sultan to the ruler to make sure that the law is applied. So these are all uh, accurate notions of siyasa, but siyasa is also very, it's a source of anxiety in the Islamic tradition, especially after the Mongol invasions. 
because at that point, Siasa also becomes a, a doorway through which illegitimate, non-Islamic, foreign ideas of justice and rule can be sort of brought into the Islamic tradition. So you see this very clearly in the way that some Mamluk-era thinkers like al-Makrizi talk about siyasa, and they'll say siyasa comes from the word yasa or Mongol law, which is actually not true. But there is a thing that siyasa is like this. It's like this, this weird Turco-Mongol idea of justice. It's not the Sharia. It's not Islamic. In that anxiety, you see the same type of anxiety we see today when we talk about the kind of misuse of political authority by Muslim rulers, which is that they're using the language of the Sharia or notion of siyasa to really cloak or disguise what are their naked political ambitions or agendas of various parties or their own kind of venal interests or desires for power. So th- this is sort of one of the abiding anxieties around siyasa is that it's illegitimate, it's something from outside the Sharia, and it's something that is used by corrupt powers, the corrupt rulers, to sort of insert their own and justify their own wants. Okay, so there are some areas, right, there are some areas where siyasa was highly contested. So I'm going to, this is actually not the way I would like to discuss this, but it makes sense in the general flow of what I'm going to say. I'm going to start not with notions of siyasa that were totally accepted and legitimate, but I'm going to start with ones that were actually contested. Right? And this is especially the case after the Mongol invasions. Prior to the Mongol invasions, you don't really see the term siyasa used in a very controversial way. It's used almost just to talk about like the sort of run-of-the-mill executive authority you'd expect from any functioning state. Like, you know, uh, okay, the streets of Baghdad, camels are going to walk on the right side of the road. Sorry. I mean, I would be interesting to find out if they were, like, British or American. Or be a, but, I mean, it, look, somebody's got to decide which side of the road the camels are going to go on, and that's good siyasa. Otherwise, you're going to have camel accidents. Uh, so uh, that, that's not contested, right? But there's other things that are... Uh, really con- contested. And as I said, you see this really after the Mongol invasions, when people like Makrizi will talk about siyasa dhalima and siyasa adila. There's unjust siyasa and there's just siyasa. What is unjust siyasa? Unjust siyasa is when the ruler is being excessive in their application of force, when they're going and someone says there's, oh, there's been a theft of the, in this house. So the police come and they drag the people they think are guilty and they drag them into the street and they strip their clothes off and they start smacking them around. That's unjust siyasa. Like you're, you're over-applying your, your executive authority here. Yes, we want you to cut to the bottom of the crime, but these people have rights. Just siyasa is the government using its muscle to do things like enforce law and order to make sure that someone who's been found to owe money actually pays up and things like that. Other ways in which... Siyasa was contested but eventually gained ground and was accepted in the post-Mongol period, involved the ruler's legislation, a role in, uh, in law and legislation. So one of the things you start seeing is, post the 1200s and 1300s, you might not know this, but even in one Islamic school of law, there's usually more than one opinion on something. So the ruler might say, Okay, let's say the Ottoman government would say, listen, there's two, rule- there's two rulings in the Hanafi school of law about whether or not a woman needs the permission of her male guardian to marry. Abu Hanifa says she doesn't need the permission. His two senior students say she does need the permission. The Ottoman government says, we're going to pick the rule that says she does need permission, and that's going to be the law of the land. So the ruler uh, has the right to, if you have several options in the medhab, this, the, the official medhab of the Ottoman Empire, 
I'm going to tell you which option to choose. And the scholars, by the time you get to the 1300s and 1400s, even in, a lot of times people think it's only the Hanafi school that says this, but actually even in the other schools of law, they'll say, if the ruler tells you, follow this certain rule in your school of law, then you follow that ruler, even though that might not be the, the main or most reliable opinion of that school. And by the time you get to the 19th century, it goes even further than that. In fact, you could find other examples of this earlier, but really formally it's accepted in the 19th century, that the ruler could pick and choose from different schools of law. So going outside, so when the Ottoman Family Law Act of 1917 is passed, they take rules that are not only outside the Hanafi school of law, but are outside any of the Sunni schools of law. They go to sort of earlier, pre-school pre of law formation rules. So this is all, by that time, uncontested siyasa right of the ruler in, in, for his role or the state's role in legislation. Another thing they could do is, and the Ottomans did this as well in the 1500s, is they introduced a totally new law, sort of the kind of administrative regulation, where they'd say that uh, there's a 15-year statute of limitations for claims about uh, income or from a foundation or disputes over contracts. So if you have a dispute over contracts or about who should get money from a certain foundation, if you haven't brought the claim within 15 years, you, you have no claim. And this is, not, this is actually not found in any school of law. This is their own kind of administrative addition. Another issue that is, it's contested, but it eventually becomes accepted by the time you get to the 1700s, 1800s, is what's called taqyid uh, al-mubah. Taqyid al-mubah means restricting the permissible. This is a very important concept in which the ruler uh, or the state aggregates to its, arrogates to itself the right to make something not allowed that is actually allowed by God and the prophet. This doesn't really show up on the radar screen until the 1700s, late 1600s, early 1700s, around what issue? Coffee. <laughs> Coffee. It's like all important things. It ultimately has to do with caffeine. So the Ottoman uh, Sultan Murad IV uh, wanted to shut down coffee shops because they don't, where do people, when they're in coffee shops, they're always talking about politics and other sketchy stuff. So he wanted to shut down coffee shops. Can the, can the ruler shut down activities that are not shut down by God and the Prophet? Because the Quran says, uh, What is it? What is the verse? Yes, thank you very much. Why do you prohibit for yourself what God has made allowed? You do not have the right to make prohibited what God has allowed. So what is restricting the permissible? It's not making it haram. It's simply saying it's administratively not allowed. It's administratively not allowed. Right? This becomes a really robustly discussed in the 19th and 20th century, early 20th centuries, around two issues. Abolition of slavery and ideas about prohibition of polygamy. So this is another area where siyasa really becomes very robust. It's contested initially, but eventually is accepted. Uh, now, there's, there's some areas where siyasa was always allowed, never controversial, and in fact, might be the only game in town. One of them is warfare. It, the ruler gets to decide, you know, how the army's organized, what the army does, what kind of troops you have, right? Now, there's certain restrictions, like there are certain Sharia laws of war. You can't kill women and children. Uh, you shouldn't use fire on your enemy, right? So these are, there are certain rules, but within that, within these broad restrictions, it's, the, the ruler can kind of do as they, as they see fit. Other things like taxation, the ruler is also very important in what we would think of as public law in the sense of public order or criminal law. So in, in Sharia law, if I, if I go and I 
kick Osama as hard as I can in the shin, and I injure him, I've committed a tort, right? or in Roman law, like a delict, right? So I've, I have to pay, compensate him for his injury. So that's a uh, private issue, private law issue. If I get in a fight with Osama and punch him in the face and really bloody him, uh, again, I have to compensate him for his injuries. But there's also a public element because I'm disturbing the peace. We would think about it in the kind of Anglo-Saxon tradition of disturbing the peace. But the, who is it? So let's say I beat Osama within an inch of his life. Who is it who actually facilitates this provision of justice or, or compensation? Or God forbid, let's say I kill Osama. Who is it who's going to bring the case to court, so to speak? Or actually to court, right? In theory, Osama's relatives do. But let's say Osama doesn't have any relatives. Then the government does, the ruler does, because the prophet says, Ana man la I am the wali, I am the, the, the guardian of the person who has no guardian. And the, the, when you see in the, the cases in the life of the prophet for injury and murder, that it's the, the prophet as the judge who f- controls the trials. And sometimes, let's say no, no one is there to pay compensation money from someone who's been killed, like you can't find who the murderer is. The prophet himself will pay the con- compensation money out of the kind of public fist. So this is siyasa in the sense of criminal law, both uh, responsibility for public order, also controlling and facilitating the private claims and the public claims. The final area in which siyasa was really uncontested is what I find fascinating, which is what's called the Madhalim court. Madhalim is the Arabic term. If you're in our Persianate, with our Persianate brothers and sisters, you'd say Mazalim or our Kyrian brothers and sisters at Mazalim. Mazalim means uh, grievances or wrongs. And the first uh, instance we find of these in the Islamic tradition seems like maybe they emerged in the late Umayyad period, but we don't have any, you know, the, the sources explaining this are all Abbasid era sources. We don't know if they're just kind of back projecting some of these institutions. But definitely by the late 700s, you have the existence of Mazalim courts that are created and organized by the Abbasid caliphs. And what is the Madalim court? The Madalim court is a court of grievance. So if something wrong has happened, you can go to the Madalim court. And the Madalim court is, in theory, held by the ruler. Because ultimately, it's the ruler's responsibility to, to solve or to, to bring justice and provide justice for his subjects. Now, what ends up happening is the ruler usually delegates this to some vizier or delegates it to a judge, a qadi, or whoever is in charge, of course, they're obvious they're going to have qadis and muftis there and scholars to supervise things and make sure everything is done appropriately. But the idea is that it's the ruler who's going to provide, ultimately provide justice. So what kind of, what is the function of the Madhalim court? In one sense, it's like an internal oversight for the government. So if, let's say I've appointed Osama, my tax collector for the region around Basra, and I start hearing report, you know, so, you know, Osama's been taking a lot of tax money. I saw him the other day. He was being carried around by 50 different Turkic slaves and, you know, had way too much, way too many pistachio nuts or whatever somebody had to show they were rich at the time. So I'm okay. I'm going to launch an investigation on Osama and find out what's going on here. That could be done. So internal self-prompted, not by complaints, but by the government's own or someone in the government's own concern. Now, if let's say Osama is the tax collector and he's come and overtaxed my melon shop, I can go because he's a government official 
and I can take this complaint to the Madalam court. What's another way? Another thing it does. It could serve as a, essentially a court of appeals because who, who might be a government official who treats you unjustly? It could be a judge. So I've gone to the regular Qadi court, the, the normal fiqh is applied, right? Normal Islamic law is applied. And I don't think I've gotten a fair just, judgment because I think this judge is being unjust. So then I take, so it functions like an appeals court. Or finally, it also functions as a criminal law court. Criminal law court. Because like the instances in the, the lifetime of the prophet where a Muslim is found murdered in Khaybar, which is a Jewish town, right? The Jewish population say, we didn't do it. The Muslims say, we didn't do it. So who's going to pay for this person's blood? Who's going to compensate his family? Who's going to answer for the wrong done? The prophet eventually pays himself. It pays out of the public money. So the criminal court is there to catch instances of injustice that have fallen through the cracks. And so that's one of the things that the Madalam court does, is it catches things that fall through the cracks. And why are there cracks that can be fallen through to begin with? This is where we get into this question of, like, why isn't God's law sufficient? If God's law is perfect, why are there cracks? Why are, why are instances of injustice happening? Some of these cracks exist because the general fiqh, the general kind of body of law, procedural law, and substantive law derived by Muslim scholars from the Quran, the precedent of the Prophet, the practice of the early Muslim community, is a very concerned with protection of defendants. So the default state of affairs is that people don't owe things to one another. If I'm going to say Osama needs to be punished because Osama did something to me, I have to provide evidence. I can't just expect him to be punished because I say something. Because otherwise, people would just go around saying stuff about other people all the time and collecting money or having them punished. So that in order to move from the default state of affairs to a new state of affairs, the plaintiff has to provide evidence. Now, uh, what that means is that if I'm, if, let's say Osama really did attack me, but he's just very cunning and made sure no one saw him and there was no cameras or anything like that, right? I've still been wrong, but now I have no route to justice because Os Osama, as a defendant, is justifiably protected by, you know, I have to provide evidence if I'm going to infringe on his rights. Or another case uh, in which the kind of rights of defendants are protected, judges, this is not always true in different schools of Islamic law, but in general, judges can't rule based on what they know. They have to rule by what's given as evidence in the court. So let's say Abdul Khalik says, Osama roughed me up and robbed me in an alley in downtown Oxford the other day. I don't have any witnesses, but I swear to God this happened. Yeah, there's no cameras, surprisingly. But lo and behold, I was walking by the exact same alley and I saw it happen. Because I'm sadistic, I just watched. <laughs> but I know you're telling the truth. I still can't rule against Islamic. Why? Because I have to go by what's based on the evidence. Why would this be the case? This is moronic. Because imagine this. What happens if if I'm a judge who can rule by what I know, I can just say, I like those, uh, those shoes, Eugene. Those are my shoes. You took those shoes from me, and I saw it happen. I know you did it. So the, the judge could pursue his own ends or his own agenda using his claim of knowledge of the law. So you want to protect people from corrupt judges. Okay. So one sense and one way in which the Mizalim courts 
are more flexible and can pick up things that fall through these cracks is that the judge is allowed to act on their own knowledge. A second thing, the judge is not bound by their school of law. In general, and this is true throughout Islamic history, although things start to get a little bit more flexible in the kind of 1300s and 1400s and much more flexible in the 19th, 20th centuries, a judge should rule by the school of law that they belong to. In fact, mostly they should rule by the main opinion of the school of law they belong to, unless the ruler has come and said, take this other one, right? Or we've decided that we're going to take this other one for some public policy reason. The judge overseeing the Madhalam court doesn't have to do that. The judge overseeing the Madhalam court can pick from any of the schools of law as long as they're within the outer bounds of the Sharia. So they can't go outside all the schools of law, but they can pick within that. So if you, I like the image of Mr. Potato Head. Do you guys have this in the UK? Mr. Potato Head? Maybe you're a little old for this. Toy Story. They have Mr. Potato Head in Toy Story? Okay, so Mr. Potato Head in his bucket of parts. So in theory, a judge should only take pieces from their medheb to make their Mr. Potato Head. The Madhalam judge can go and take from other buckets of parts to make like a, a composite Mr. Potato Head that is going to give justice in this situation. The Madhalam judge, based on that, actually has more flexible in terms of what they can accept as evidence because some schools of law, for example, the Hanafi school of law, is much stricter about only accepting oral evidence as opposed to documentary evidence. So even if I have a document, in theory, I have to present somebody who is present at the creation of that document or have a witness to say, this is what the document says. It was done on this date at this certain time. Other schools of law, like the Maliki school, much more accepting of documentary evidence. So you can accept evidence that you might not otherwise be able to accept if you belong to one of these more strict schools of law. What you could think about the Madhalan courts as doing as shifting the burden of proof, or sh not, I wouldn't say sh shifting the preference. It shifts the preference from protection of the defendant to facilitation of the plaintiff getting justice. And you could say, wait a second, couldn't a plaintiff come to the Madhalam court? Let's say I want these shoes, and I happen to have some documentary evidence, and I happen to have, um, you know, the judge happens to be in cahoots with me. He also wants some of Eugene's clothing. We could go and, and, and you would be deprived of your rights. And that would be a correct, that would be a correct objection. So if, if you're trying to prevent or avoid defendants being wrongfully deprived of their rights, that could happen in this situation. But it's sort of like, if you're, the idea is, if a plaintiff has decided to go to the Madhalam court, then in theory, their decision to take that initiative is going to suggest that they really have been denied justice. Right? So they're, they, they've taken the time and energy to go to the Madhalam court and do this. All right. It's interesting that Madhalam courts were criticized for meddling with the Sharia, right? For, for, for being kind of attempts to usurp or to undermine or to question the provision of justice by God's law. Uh, there's a wonderful book by Christine Hayes called What's Divine About Divine Law. It looks at Jewish and Greek law. I really recommend this book. I think it came out in 2015. But to, to borrow her title, right? If, if you need to seal cracks, then what's divine about divine law? The way that Muslim scholars answered this, and the, the main uh, text I've seen on this is from a, it's a fascinating text, uh, hopefully I'm gonna, I've tr done a critical edition of it and translation of it from Persian, 
is by a scholar named Jalaluddin Davani. He's a, what, basically the last kind of great Sunni scholar of Iran, uh, especially southern Iran. He's from Shiraz, uh, and he dies 1502 of the Common Era, right before the Safavid takeover of, um, of uh, southern Iran. He writes a treatise about this, and he, he, in, some time, in some senses he's taking some earlier treatises on Madalam courts, like by the famous Shafi jurist Abu Hassan al-Mawardi, who died 1058. But he's adding a lot of his own thoughts and a lot of new material from his own time. And he mounts a very vigorous defense of Madalam courts. What he says is, going back to the beginning of Islam, the duty of the judge is to protect what's called hakuq al-ibad. Hakuq al-ibad are the rights of the slaves. What slaves? The slaves of God. Who are the slaves of God? Human beings. Is anybody, like Abdul Khalik, Abdul Khalik, right? He's the slave of the creator. That's what his name means in Arabic. He's a slave of the creator. So he's a slave of God. We're all slaves of God. So the rights of the slaves are the rights of the slaves of God. You have, all human beings have, and this is according to Muslim scholars going back to the late 700s is when they first articulate this. Human beings, all of them, whether they're Christian or Muslim or Jew or men or women or slave or free, they have certain rights. They have the right to physical inviolability. They can't be physically harmed without just cause. They have the right to property. They can't be deprived of their property without just cause. They have the right to due process. They can't be deprived of due process without just cause. And then they add other ones onto that, some of which only apply to Muslims, some of which apply to non-Muslims as well. But those are the three basic ones. The ruler has to, and the judge has to protect these. And you, and you go back to letters like the famous letter that uh, Omar ibn Khattab writes to Abu Hassan al-Ashari, which is found in the, the earliest place I've seen it is the Adab al-Qadi by, uh, by the Hanafi scholar al-Khassaf in the 900s, where he says, uh, God has protected the rights of the slaves through the bayina. Bayina is the requirement for evidence. The fact that you're required to give evidence to place a claim on somebody is to protect people's rights. Uh, the, another great Hanafi scholar, Abu Yusuf, who died in 798, one of the, the first chief judge of the Abbasid Caliphate, says the judge's job is to make sure that people get their rights, get their hukuk. So if it's the, salt, the judge's job and ultimately the sultan or the ruler's job to make sure that the rights of the slaves of God are protected, you have to have some kind of provision whether, or a forum to deal with instances in which someone has not received their rights in the regular court. You have to have this form, otherwise you're not fulfilling your duty under God. Devani actually goes even further. He says that if you say the Madhalam court is wrong or haram, that that's kufr, that's unbelief. This is my kind of guy, I like this guy. He's like, you know, let me make this very clear, okay? If you say this, this is unbelief, right? This is unbelief. Now, to be clear, Devani and earlier Amawardi makes it clear. The Madhalam judge cannot go outside the bounds of the Sharia. So this is where, for example, the... Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Oh, so if I said, Osama, you killed my brother, so I'm going to kill your uncle. That cannot be accepted. There's no, in, in, there's no conceivable way in the Sharia that you have this like vicarious liability. The person who answers for a crime is the person who committed the crime. There's no medhev that allows this, right? Or if I, in the, in the case of the Ottoman, um, or the famous instance in which the Tunisian president, Habib Bourguiba, like drinks orange juice on TV during uh, Ramadan, 
He says, we are engaged in the jihad of modernization. <laughs> we can drink. And then he says, the two Sheikh al-Islams, the Hanafi and the Maliki one, will give a fatwa approving this. And they looked at each other like, <laughs> and the next day in the newspaper, that it is not permissible to break your fast during a Ramadan unless the normal reason. So there's certain, you can't go outside the bounds of the Sharia. The Madalim judge cannot go outside the bounds of the Sharia. But your job is, as a Madalim judge, to get, the mo- to, to get justice and get what is aslah, what is best and most fitting in that situation using the kind of larger Mr. Potato Head bucket of parts that you've made out of all the different methods. All right. Now, what's very interesting is in the uh, 1860s and 70s, when the Ottoman uh, Empire starts to go through a process of legal formalization and routinization, which, by the way, they're not doing in a kind of pathetic attempt to imitate Europeans, but they're doing really at the same time as this is being done in Western Europe, in the United States. The, so Ottomans are engaging in like codification of law at the same time as this is be, being done in, in, in England or in uh, the United States or in France, right? Uh, so they see themselves as, they're not engaging in a process of Westernization, they're engaging in a process of modernization, of like, you know, creating more routine courts that are better organized, taking advantage of new technologies of administration and communication. Uh, so they create a new court system called the Nizamiya court system. And this is going to exist alongside the normal Qadi courts, the Sharia courts, right? What is one of the ways they justify this to kind of naysayers or uh, doubters who are saying, this is, you're creating something outside the, the realm of the Sharia. You're creating something new we never had before. Jebdet Pasha, who died in 1895, who is the kind of oversees a lot of these legal reforms, including the formation of the Nizamiya courts, including the drafting and the promulgation of the Ottoman a civil law called the Majella. He goes and brings Davani's treatise, his Persian treatise, he translates it into Turkish, and he provides it to his opponents. He says, look, I'm not doing something new. This is essentially a modern-day Madalam courts. So what ends up happening is, whereas in the pre, let's say, pre-1700s or the pre-1800s in the Ottoman Empire, the majority of legal issues contracts, property, family issues, inheritance, wakfs, things like that, be handled by the Qadi courts. And certain issues like criminal law, commercial, some commercial issues dealing with foreigners would be handled by the, the kind of political courts. The political court column is getting expanded through this Nizamiya system, and the Sharia courts are getting contracted to just deal with things like family law, succession, inheritance, child custody, right? But what's happening is the, the sort of madhalim rubric is just being expanded to suck in material that otherwise it was being handled by the Qadi courts. But none of these institutions is illegitimate. None of them are illegitimate, at least technically. But this brings us to our final problem. Excuses sometimes are hard to believe. Right? So if somebody says, this is actually, I can give a great example from, from current United States. The United States just assassinated Qasem Soleimani in Iraq, right? On what basis? The, what was it called? What, UMDA, Unif- U- UMDF, the Nuclear Military Declaration of Force, right? So after 9-11... The United States Congress said, we give permission for the president to pursue the parties involved in 9-11, those people who facilitated it. 
the U.S. government has done <laughs> used this to invade Afghanistan, invade Iraq, fight the Shabab, go into the Sahel, and apparently like vaporize some Iranian guy, right? So as far as I know, Iran was not responsible for 9-11. So the point is, at a certain point, I can say that I'm using this originally legitimate rubric to engage in some kind of activity, but at a certain point, you've sort of stretched the fabric way too thin and people aren't buying it anymore. If you want to think about it in terms of like statutory interpretation, uh, you've departed so far from any conceivable meaning of this original text that the thread of uh, credibility has broken. And you're clearly just pursuing your own aims. They may be legitimate or illegitimate. But you're clearly pursuing your own aims without the justifying uh, presence of that original kind of mandate or, 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 or justifying uh, element. So yes, the, these new court systems and the court systems that are based on it in the successor countries of the Ottoman Empire or in other Muslim countries, yes, they all are in theory sort of modern equivalents of these Muslim courts or other siyasa, expressions of siyasa authority. But we're kind of back at our original anxiety, which is that siyasa can sometimes just be politics. Or it can be used to it can be used to facilitate what a government wants. So, for example, the Saudi government recently had an IPO of a certain percentage of the shares of Aramco, the Saudi state-owned oil company. If you go back and look at some Saudi scholars or state-sponsored or state-affiliated scholars, a couple of years ago, it is haram to have an IPO. This is cannot do this. And you go back a few weeks ago. It is entirely acceptable to have an IPO. Right? Another thing in Saudi Arabia, it used to be that if you go back to the 1980s, Abdulaziz bin Baz says, car insurance, haram. Any kind of insurance, haram. Because insurance, like, you're paying a company money, you might never get anything. You're, you're engaged in unacceptable risk. It's called gharar, gharar. But recently you see scholars say, okay, now you're allowed to have car insurance and other kinds of insurance because it's the command of Wali al-Amr. Wali al-Amr means the ruler. The ruler has used their siyasa authority to make it legitimate, so now you can have insurance. Now, I happen to think insurance, car insurance is a good idea. So don't go around saying John the Brown came to Oxford and started saying don't have car insurance. <laughs> I have car insurance. You should all have car insurance if that's the type of thing you do in your country. If not, forget what I'm talking about. My point is, that this, is, this might be a good idea, but what is motivating this? Is this really kind of a sincere expression, a sincere attempt to understand God's law, or is this bowing to different political winds? Another thing, in the Ottomans in the 1850s, after the British and the French helped them out in the Crimean War, I suppose someone should be thanked in here for that, right? Uh, they, the Ottomans make a promise to end religious discrimination in their realm. And so they stopped levying the jizya, which is the tax that non-Muslims pay under Islamic rule to continue practicing their religion and receive protection. They stopped levying the jizya. Under, on what basis? Because in the Hanafi school, Muhammad bin Hassan Shibani said that it can be the decision of the rule, the choice of the ruler whether or not to uh, implement the jizya or not. And they used some examples from the caliphate of the, uh, the second caliph, Omar bin al-Khattab. So, but what's driving this? Is it you know, a sincere attempt to understand God's law? Is it trying to placate powerful forces of Western Europe? Or is it trying to come to terms with a new, with a kind of a new reality of how states function? 
I mean, it's sort of, we, 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 it becomes confusing about what's motivating, what's driving these moves. Or the case today of Iran. So the Iranian government, in general in Islamic law, the blood money you pay for a non-Muslim would be less than a Muslim. So a Vimmi, a non-Muslim living under Muslim rule, if they get killed by a Muslim, that Muslim would pay less money to compensate that person's family than if the Muslim had killed another Muslim. The Iranian government says, it, in, in order to protect justice in our current Iranian government, in order to protect justice in our realm, the state is going to step in and use its siyasa authority to like top off that amount. So we're going to kind of fill in the rest of that money, and so you're going to have equal compensation for Muslims and non-Muslims. So some of these things, like we might sit there and say, this is, uh, you know, th- these are these are good ideas, or these are. These seem to be really efforts to sort of wrestle with the aims of the Sharia or what God wants. But how do we know when they're, when they're that or when they're kind of more uh, attempts to follow a, a fad uh, that's being promoted by Western governments or something? A, another good example is the new family law that was passed in Morocco, promulgated in Morocco in 2004, Mudawunat al-Usra. There are new laws that use the drawings from other medhebs, for example, to say that a woman in Morocco doesn't need her, her male, male guardian's permission to marry. That a woman, uh, that divorce has to be, you can't, in theory, in Islamic law, uh, if I say to my wife, you're divorced, you're divorced, you're divorced, if we're like in a cabin in the woods and all that's all around is like some pigeons, that's a valid divorce. That's a valid divorce. But according to this, uh, and this is also the case in Malaysia, you have to pronounce a divorce in court. This is, there's no medhab that says this. This is pure restriction of the permissible, taqid mubah, for the benefit of the Muslim community. This could be a good argument. Do we really want to have situations in which men are divorcing their wives and then denying it? Or women are saying they're divorced and they weren't? You know, we should regulate this or make it official. Similarly, marriages have to be documented in the courts. In all, in, uh, all Islamic schools of law, if two families go off in the wilderness and have a marriage ceremony for their children together, that's legitimate in God's eyes. So this is a case of state restricting the permissible. Some of these might be good ideas. Some of these might be questionable ideas. The problem is it's very hard for Muslims to engage in these discussions when the discussions take place in light of overwhelming power imbalances. Right? So if Muslims could free themselves from you know, the tensions of, or the poles of Islam and the West, tradition and modernity, a colonizer and colonized, imperial and, and ruled, right? Kind of global consumer capitalist and local indigenous and authentic. Like these poles just sort of suck everything towards them. It makes it very difficult for Muslims to have a kind of authentic and honest discussion about, you know, this issue of whether, you know, whether God's law is enough or whether we need to rethink aspects of the Sharia to deal with uh, changing technologies and changing times. Thank you very much.